Welcome to Everybody Hates Me, Let's Talk About Stigma, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. She's a Canada Research Chair in Global Health Equity and Social Justice with Marginalized Populations and an Associate Professor at the University of Toronto's Factor in Wintosh Faculty of Social Work. Every week, the show features amazing speakers from around the world talking about stigma from research, lived experiences, and activism perspectives. Why should we care about stigma? What can we do about it? Thank you for tuning in. Let's start the show. Today, I am so honored and excited to introduce our guest, Dr. Rosemary Morgan, who is an assistant scientist at Johns Hopkins University's Bloomberg School of Public Health in the Department of International Health, and I believe you're also affiliated with some other departments I'll let you describe. Rosemary is a global expert in gender and gendered analysis, and I believe I met you in Vancouver in 2019 at the Women Deliver conference where you were on a panel of gender experts. Is that right? And then I was also lucky enough to be able to spend time with you in the fall when I was in Baltimore uh, doing a Fulbright at Hopkins. Thank you so much, Carmen, and thank you for having me on today. Yeah, yes, I'm affiliated with uh, the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, uh, but also the Johns Hopkins School of Nursing. But my primary affiliation is in the Department of International Health, uh, the Health Systems Program. And I do think we did meet briefly at the Women Deliver Conference in Vancouver, which is funny because that's where I'm from, Vancouver. Um, mm. So I was home and I got to meet a fellow Canadian there who then I got to reconnect with when you came to Baltimore. That was fun. Um, for the listeners who may very well know your work, but maybe some don't, if we were in an elevator together and I said, so Rosemary, what kind of work did you do? How would you describe it? Your elevator pitch. My elevator pitch. Well, see if I, how many floors do I have? <laughs> as many as you want. <laughs> okay. So I study gender power relations and how they have differential ex- effects on men and women and people of other genders in terms of their health and health systems experience outcomes more generally. So it's also looking at how does gender power relations intersect with other social inequities and other social identities like race, class, income, disability, sexual orientation, migrant status, etc, etc, to create differential experiences related to the health system. So that might be related to health seeking. So looking at service delivery, how do people access and use services, as well as as the other health system structures. So uh, we often talk about health system like health systems building blocks, and there, there are six of them. And mm. this comes from the World Health Organization framework and looks at human resources for health, health financing, medical products and technology, governance and leadership, service delivery, and health information systems. So I'm interested in the ways in which gender power relations manifest in in all of these different health systems building blocks to create differential experiences and outcomes. So not only for 
health users and health seekers, but also those who work within the health system, like the like health, health workers, but also those policymakers, decision makers. Mm, that's so interesting and so huge. So I want to ask you, if I was to show up at your place in Baltimore with a time machine and we were both wearing masks or it was pre-COVID uh, and I said, Rosemary, when did you start thinking about gender and power relations? Where, where did that start becoming a passion for you? Take me back in that place in this time machine. Where would we go? Interestingly, I think we'd actually go back to Vancouver. Mm. Um, I like Vancouver. Go back to, <laughs> yes, so go back to Vancouver. But before I met you, um, I did my undergraduate degree at the University of British Columbia. Um, and I originally started a, a degree in theater and looking at technical theater. Really? And realized quickly, you know, although I was enjoying it, that wasn't what I wanted to pursue. And, and the one piece of theater that really interested me was the theater for change, you know, mm -hmm. the theater that's used for advocacy, for health promotion. And then at the same time, I was also volunteering at the University of British Columbia with this group called Equity Ambassadors, which is a bit of a silly name, sorry, Equity Ambassadors. Um, but uh, it was a, a student organization that we were seeking to promote equity on campus. And I also co-founded co a newsletter called Think Equity. So when I was rethinking what I wanted to do with my life and whether theater was how I wanted to, what I wanted to pursue, I decided, well, what, what are my passions and what are my interests? And I was really interested and passionate about the equity work I was doing. So I actually decided to study sociology. And, you know, there were different components of sociology. And I, I think back now to this one paper that I wrote, and I can't remember exactly what it was about. It was, feels like so long ago now. <laughs> it was actually looking at intersectionality. You know how Kimberly Crenshaw you know, coined the term intersectionality, came out of the Black feminist movement mm -hmm. to look at the intersection of race and gender. But I didn't know about that then. I hadn't heard about intersectionality till years later. Mm -hmm. And But I wrote this paper in the Canadian context, and I believe it was looking at you know, experiences of Aboriginal women, if I remember correctly, but it was experiences within the law and how, and I argued in the paper how these women were being made invisible, right? And how the law wasn't protecting them because of their intersecting identities. I didn't use those language because I didn't have that terminology then. And, and when I look back on this, you know, on this paper that I wrote, you know, and I really, it really was bringing in concepts and, and thinking about intersectionality, like Kim Kimberly Crenshaw brings it in. And after that, I went and did my master's, but I looked at policy studies because I was interested in like, how can we apply sociology in a, in a, in real world settings. And then I, I was more, much more interested in health. So I went on to do a PhD in international health policy. I was always really interested and passionate about, you know, women's health, sexual reproductive health, family planning. And it wasn't until after my PhD that I really got into, you know, built, put all my passions together and really started to explore gender, gender analysis, and also gender and intersectionality. So how gender intersects with other social stratifiers. So I felt like it was this sort of this long path to get me to where I am today. But now this is what I, I really focus on, but with, mainly within the context of health systems. That's an amazing journey, and it made me realize that we have two things in common that I did not know about. One of them is I also did an undergrad in sociology at U of T, mm. <laughs> and the second one is 
I did theater for change as part of an LGBTQ stigma reduction project in Lesotho and Eswatini. And it was amazing. I had no idea you were oh. in theater. <laughs> but I want to know what is technical so theater? <laughs> what is technical theater? Oh, it's, it's behind the scenes theater. So it's the stage management. It's the paint, scene painting. It's lighting. It's set design. And I gravitated towards stage management because... Uh, I'm people would call me fairly organized, I suppose. Um, <laughs> and those skills I still use today in my in project management. So it's the same sort of similar project management skills, the same with, with stage management. So it was sort of a natural extension of that. What I had envisioned while I was studying it was that I would find like a tour company because I really wanted to see the world and travel and and be part of theater that communicated messages of equity and social justice mm. and health promotion. But then, you know, I realized I, I didn't really want to travel that much, but little did I know <laughs> that my life became that anyways. <laughs> Later, not right now, obviously I'm stuck at home, but it's it, as much as travel as I thought I was going to do, I've actually been doing for the last year or two. If you're traveling, um, theaters in a different way in meetings and things mm-hmm. like that um yeah. meetings conferences yeah <laughs> so why i thought you'd be an ideal uh, guest for many reasons but one of them is in the field of stigma and stigma discrimination i've been measuring you know gender discrimination with say women with hiv for a while but i noticed that it's a less discussed kind of stigma in the stigma world is stigma related to gender and gender inequities. But I see that this is what you're, you're really focusing on and could really, I think, help to expand the ways that we're thinking about it. And, and especially your leadership with gender and COVID-19 is just so relevant and important and timely and innovative. So I'm going to ask you, why should we care about the ways that either particular genders are stigmatized or there's inequities structured around gender. Who cares? What's the big deal? We have like a lot of big issues in the world. Well, I care. (laughs) I care, Carmen. (laughs) But why should I care? Why should I care? (laughs) (laughs) So (laughs) I like to think of it in uh, in women health systems as a sort of I don't analogy that is often used and um, I can't say like I coined it, but it's, you know, based on work of my colleagues, you know, Valerie Percival, who's at Carleton University in Canada, actually, and she's the gender and health systems researcher too. And what works some work that we've been doing is thinking about, you know, within health systems and we have these health systems models and, and one of the goals is always equity, you know, gender equity or health equity, just equity in general, health equity, equity, equitable outcomes. But how can we expect to get equitable outcomes if we have processes and structures in place that aren't equitable? So if the health system itself, you know, how how human resources for health is structured, how governance and who gets to be leaders or not, and who gets to have a place at the table is not equitable, how can we expect our outcomes to be equitable, right? So we need to think about those structures and processes that are creating inequities, and inequities include stigma and discrimination, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and how people are treated and how people experience the health system, you know, and, and we do see huge differential outcomes. And one of the reasons that we always say, what, why, why should you care is 
we do have evidence that just going thinking about gender particularly that more gender equitable societies the more equitable society is the better off everyone is mm-hmm. men women people of other genders right so many outcomes not just related to health people do better right so we need to produce these sort of equitable structures in a way that help in order to treat, achieve those outcomes and that's what we're doing in health systems so by that i mean like looking at governance and leadership who has a seat at the table we have there's 25 or 75% of all health workers are women but only 25% of um health system leadership and and global mm-hmm. health leadership is women right and even in covid right now you you mentioned the you know i'm part of a gender and covid working group and working closely with women in global health who's leading operation 5050 that is looking at leadership within covid decision making and we're seeing the same numbers very low percentage and even in like the the uk task force at the beginning had zero women i don't know what they're stand right now but they know they had zero women at the beginning the us had maybe one woman like it, there's so little and and i'm only looking at gender here what about race what about other dimensions mm-hmm. right if we don't have diverse decision making bodies certain key considerations are being left off the table considerations that are important for women that are important for women of color important for you know maybe gender minorities as well if they're not part of your lived experience or your understanding you're less likely to see them as important so we need those diverse equitable structures both in, uh, and i'm just using the example of leadership and governance here to create more equitable outcomes and that goes for covid response but all health system and health response more generally. I really appreciate that you mention how gender inequities impact everybody because I think oftentimes when you say the word gender it's conflated with a uh, cisgender so a non-transgender heterosexual woman. So that's sort of the default yeah. white woman. The default position is is oh gender is this rather than actually gender is something mm-hmm. that everybody has, you know, or even if someone is non-binary there's still like a relationship with gender exists for everybody. When you mm-hmm. see inequalities around gender, can you give an example of what that looks like in practice? So what is the journey of gender discrimination, gender inequality? that leads there to being not enough say women in leadership positions globally like why why does that happen what are these sort of like examples of gender stigma gender discrimination gender inequalities that that kind of contribute to these larger more structural issues or continue perpetuating them That's a big question and I have so many examples. So let me to think through what example I want to give you or examples. And maybe I'll also bring in COVID here because it's so much a part of our right. lives right now and it's so much a part of my life right now, but it's interesting that you say first I'm going to go back to the comment about how gender is often conflated with women and that's true. You know, but gender doesn't equal women. And it's it's just often conflated with women because women and girls tend to be those that are most marginalized and discriminated against because of gender inequities right that we have to see the biggest inequities and biggest poor outcomes which is often why gender inequity is considered you know we're always looking at who's worse off who's disadvantaged right but then the intersectionality helps us bring in more of a nuance to say you know what different women have different experiences right um the different men have different experiences and as you're right everyone has a gender men women and 
people of other gender, so gender minorities. And, and gender is about socially constructed norms, roles, relations, attributes of what it's considered to be a man and woman. This is very context specific. What it means to be a man or woman in the United States is different than in Tanzania, for example, or, you know, um, or China, Japan. It's very, it's different throughout the world. And it's different over time. Like what it meant to be a man or woman 50 years ago is different than what it means today. So it's fluid and everyone has a gender and gender, the, the differential gender power relations, we, we often talk about sort of these gender frameworks to help understand them. So how the different ways in which gender power relations manifest to create differential access to resources, for example, then resources are income. It's also knowledge, information, networks, you know, it's so much technology. Um, also norms, distributional labor practices, who does what, right? Mm-hmm. And then also who values, beliefs, perceptions. And that's often where stigma is in that category, right? And, and then we have like power decision-making as well and autonomy, and we see differential access and, and differential experiences throughout these different domains for men and women and people of other genders, some positive and some negative. And historically, things that have been attri- attributed to women or seen as more feminine have been devalued. Mm-hmm. I, and I, I was saying it was interesting that you said that gender, when we say gender, the woman is the white woman is often seen as the norm. And that's very true right? White feminism is often equated with white feminism, right? And looking at the the needs of a particular woman, and often a well-educated, high-income woman, right? And we know it's not, that's not true. But to look at the world, and the way the world is designed and structured, the default is the white male, Hmm. right? Mm -hmm. The default is those that are at their identities, the way they intersect are the identities of, of privilege and power, right? So let me give an example related to thinking about the structures, right? And thinking about health and health systems, because that's, that's where I work. And thinking about it in terms of, for example, you know, thinking about health research in general, right? And for years, women were excluded from randomized controlled trials, right? And randomized controlled trials are so important for vaccines, like the COVID vaccine right now, right? They're testing it on individuals and they need to create these trials to see if it's, if it works, if it's going to be effective or not. But for years, women were excluded because they were worried that women's hormones would affect the results. Mm-hmm. So men were the ones in uh, doing these trials and the results then, while they, the results for men, they're actually applied to everybody in the whole world, like in a way, right? Like it's, and we see that with even heart attack symptoms you know, that your left arm goes fuzzy or numb. Those are the heart attack symptoms for men. The women's heart attack symptoms are so different. And even doctors, nurses, health professionals are taught the symptoms for men. Women, we're taught the symptoms for, for men. So not even mm. us as women don't often know. And that is a systematic structural way in which gender bias has affected sort of the way in which in medical drugs. And, and we see that with drugs as well. Like I think there's a common example used with Ambien, which is a common sleep drug. So let's say 10 milligrams of Ambien, if men and women would take it at night, right? Men actually um, digested it or it went through their systems much faster than women. 
So by the, when they woke up, the drug was out of their system. But for women, when they woke up, the drug was not out of their system. So we saw this increase of motor vehicle accidents of women who had used Ambien the night before because it was the same dosage for men and women because, you know, that, that was a gender bias. The norm was the male body, the, the male um, norm. And I want to use one more example. That's, that's such a great, I mean, COVID. that's such a just really great examples you're giving. Yeah, I, yeah, there's just, just an example related to COVID that we need more data and evidence on. But I just think it's so interesting because it's so relevant for now. Like the, all of this that I'm talking about is relevant for now. And we're seeing, you know, differential health outcomes as a result for men and women. More women are in accidents, they're dying. More women are, we see an increase in women dying from heart attacks too, you know, and bring on, bring in race too on top of that. Um, women of color are even less believed, you know, when they have heart attack symptoms. So that there's even more stigma and discrimination there. But sorry, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me go back to my COVID example. <laughs> Those so, are great. <laughs> yeah, we, so we know that I gave the example that 75% of health workers are women, right? So most health workers on the front lines dealing with COVID patients are women, nurses, right? Predominantly, mm-hmm. almost so nurses worldwide, they range between 75 to actually like 80, 90% of nurses are women, depending on the country. And we also know that depending on the, if you to get infected with COVID, depending on the viral load that you become in contact with, affects how sick you might get, like how serious it is for you. Mm. And if so, if you're coming mm. to contact it within it at work and higher viral settings, there's much more likely you may become more sick. I mean, we need more data, but this is what some yeah. of the hypotheses are saying and the early data is suggesting. So we're actually seeing a disproportionate number of, fem- of women healthcare workers being infected with COVID, right? We know that more men are dying with COVID and there's other, there's reasons mm. for that we could get into when we're looking at sex segregated data, but more female health workers or women health workers are being infected. We don't know mortality very much yet, but I'm talking differences sometimes of 70%, you know, of women compared Mm -hmm. to 30% of male healthcare workers, right? One of the reasons that we think that this might be is because, you know, the personal protective equipment. Yeah. So the masks and the suits and all of that is designed for the male body. Wow. so it's not fitting fem- women healthcare workers mm-hmm. because a lot of women are smaller features or their shapes and sizes are different. And yes, we don't have any sort of systematic evidence yet, but we have a lot of anecdotal evidence. So on, if you look on Twitter, there's a lot of uh, women, they're failing their fit tests is what they're called. Um, so they're, they have to do this test where they wear the mask and they test to make sure nothing got in and women are failing, failing mm-hmm. these. And then I, this is not even to say like some, how some health workers don't have PPE at all, but when they do, if it doesn't fit their bodies or it's too big, you know, they're at, at greater risk. And here is a structural systemic way in which gender bias and gender inequities is manifesting in the healthcare system to put, put women more at risk. Mm, that's a really powerful example. And even the best mask is 95% effective. Mm. So we are, we are putting people at risk, even if their gear does fit. You know? Yes, exactly. Yeah. So compound that with the gender differences and, oh my, you know, it's, it's shocking the fact that this isn't receiving as more attention. And why do you think it's not? Like why in this case, maybe women or women's work, why is it still devalued? 
Well, gender itself still isn't receiving a lot of attention. I mean, I think with COVID, to me, it looks like it's receiving more attention because COVID has turned out to be a very gendered disease, the ways in which it's manifesting and infecting and affecting both men and women. But as in the past, we've seen things that traditionally are more feminine or feminized or affect women more have been traditionally devalued. Like I said, like thinking about access to sexual reproductive health, even access to abortion and access to, you know, family planning and Mm -hmm. things related to women's health in particular with menstruation, menstrual products, the fact that they're not free, you know, um, that these are all, I think, examples of gender inequity and gender biases that just date back to the ways in which norms, values, beliefs are manifesting that equate you know, masculinity with good and femininity with bad. I mean, and we see that too with, if you're looking at men who who sometimes portray more what's quote, what's seen as more feminine traits. So remember feminine traits is a social construct, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) There's men that seem to portray these more feminine traits have even more discrimination and stigma sometimes, Mm -hmm. right? Or like transgender individuals who are actually like they're, it's their sex that they're assigned at birth is different than their gender identity. We're seeing, you know, that even compounded mm-hmm. in a way. And it's because, you know, the world has been made for and controlled by men for so long, to, to be honest. We're seeing differences and changes for sure. But in the human history, the, the, the changes have been relatively recent um, and they, they've happened very quick. So while things are changing, like, Men, more men are doing childcare. It's still disproportionately women, right? Mm-hmm. More men are doing health work. It's still disproportionately women, but of course there's more men taking on those roles. We are, the overall structures in place that make, make us think of who should be doing this role, who should be doing this work haven't changed, mm-hmm. right? So, so we're seeing some men who choose to be stay-at-home dads, they might be discriminated against because they're going against the norm mm. of what it means to be a man, right? And same with like women that might portray more masculine traits, leadership, some that's seen as more of a leader, you know, might also uh, experience more stigma, more discrimination in the workplace. So we see it across the board, which again, it's going back to that point that gender equity benefits everybody, because, you know, men should be able to have the choice, too, to stay at home and look after their children. They mm-hmm. should be able to show their emotions. They should be able to cry, They, you know, and not be penalized for it. We should all be able to be our complete human selves, whatever that means and however we want to express that, without having these, these sort of norms pressed upon us of, of how we're supposed to be and how we're supposed to act. I love that, and I think it just would open up so many more possibilities and freedom for people to not be judged um, for how they act, how they feel, whether or not it's something that's characterized as strong and powerful or something that is more weak and vulnerable. Mm -hmm. So I have my last serious question before we get to some wild card fun questions. So (laughs) (laughs) that's the best part. Okay. What? can we do about this? So, I mean, I think, mm-hmm. you know, your, your work right now, which is really spotlighting global uh, women's voices 
is a wonderful example. And what would you say for listeners? What, how can we all be part of creating this world where everybody has more possibilities of how they can express themselves and how they can live? It's a million dollar question, isn't it? (laughs) It's a difficult one to answer. Um, Because this type of change takes a really long time. We're, we're talking about normative behavioral change, right? And it t- can take generations sometimes. So I think that, you know, education is so important. You know, we see young people really uh, pushing against these norms and expectations, you know, which is really positive, I think. Mm-hmm. And they're the new generation that will bring these and they'll be the ones that enter leadership roles and whatnot. Um, but in the meantime, it's, we often... If you think about it, sometimes norms change before policy and laws and, sh- and structures change, right? Mm. Sometimes policy and laws change before norms does, and one needs to catch up to the other. And when the norms change before policy and law, that's when changes. Sometimes that's when we see political or protest, right? That's when we see people expressing their opinions and demanding for change on the ground, bottom-up approaches. Sometimes we see that change coming a policy is needed or a law change is needed. Mm -hmm. And then the norms take a while to catch up. These policy changes are sometimes so are so important when norms take a long time to change. So thinking about the structures and policies in place within our own institutions, like uh, within academia, within the workplace, family leave policies, right? Maternal leave, paternal leave, both so important. Thinking about knowing that, there are certain biases in place for women, for minorities, people of color, people with disabilities, uh, people sexual minorities as well in certain places. Having policies in place to prevent that, to know that women who have children right, need to take time off from their careers, which puts them back up compared to men, right? So, they, mm-hmm. so how can we prevent that? How can we ensure that doesn't happen? And there are certain policies and practices that we can put in place. And then in the home, we can do, we can make change as well. We can make change within, with our partners by showcasing more equitable, equal responsibilities in the home, by showcasing those practices to our children and our loved ones, right? That mm-hmm. the caregiving and, and, is, and both for children and for parents and for family members, it's both men and women's responsibility. It's not just women's responsibility. The dishes, the vacuuming, is both men and women's responsibilities. It's an adult responsibility, mm-hmm. right? So it's showcasing those examples to help with that norm change over the long term. And until we get there, making sure we have policies and, and procedures in place that at, identify and recognize that these sort of biases exist, this discrimination exists, that it's not an equal playing field. And we need to recognize that to level that playing field. So you need sort of both approaches at the same time. Mm. No, I love that because you give some really practical, immediate strategies as well as, you know, the the larger needed policy and structural changes. And even thinking about, I know some people say, well, when you see a little girl, don't always just tell her how cute and pretty she is. Ask her, you know, what she likes to do, what her passions are, you know, and not just focusing necessarily on, activities and and passions when you talk to little boys, but also to move beyond just the appearances. So I think I like to be hopeful as well. (laughs) What you're saying is we are slowly 
moving in the right direction. Yes, it's true. And that, that's such an interesting example that you bring up with, with children. And I, I haven't done this research, but I've seen research on it that, you know, even the toy aisle in toy stores of what's there were boy sections and girl sections, and that's changing now. Right. And if you looked at the boy sections, it was all toys that were very active, you know, building engineering type stuff. Whereas the girls toys were homemaker, children, <laughs> caregiving. Right. And that's already like magnifying these roles from a very young age that people internalize. So changing those practices. And, and then we actually, there's been a lot of talk about right now with COVID um, just being a window of opportunity for some of this change, especially in the home you know, by, by equalizing care work to teach like with the kids, with the household responsibilities with everyone being at home in these spaces, it, it's actually a, an opportunity where we might be able to accelerate some of this change. I hope so. I know of many people who, who don't have uh, childcare who are women and they seem to still be really shouldering a lot of the the caregiving mm-hmm. responsibilities, which really shows you how integral uh, childcare is for mm-hmm. people who so have integral. children. Um, if we really want people to not work 24 hours a day, which I yeah. think none of us really want to work 24 hours a day. And that, that's a great example of one of those sort of structural policy initiatives. So if we know that more women are responsible for caregiving of children, and we want to make sure more women are in the workplace or more women have leadership positions. We need adequate care giving. We need adequate child care, right? In order to equalize and level that playing field, because that's an inequity right there an inequity in roles and practices that is affecting women's participation in the workforce, women's productivity. Uh, and we need to change that norm, which is a long-term change. And it doesn't change overnight. So until then we need to make sure that child care is in place. Affordable childcare mm-hmm. is in place. Amazing. Thank you so much. I'm going to go to the wild card section next. So the okay. listeners can get to know the real Rosemary. What are you binging on Netflix right now? Oh, I don't know if I want to admit that. Oh, okay. <laughs> Anything good no, I can't. or Netflix? Um, <laughs> do you know, I really do love period dramas. So I was just finished watching Belgravia, which is a new period drama. I've never heard of it. Um, what, and what's another, going on there? Uh, it's on Amazon, okay. um, not not for Netflix. Uh, it's just a, you know, one. Of, it's kind of a Jane Austen-esque type of oh, show. Nice. I love Jane Austen. So I love the period dramas. Um, and I actually also been watching The Walking Dead because I also love zombie shows. That shows the my multiple personalities, but we've been is, watching the, the, the and walking dead from the beginning. Okay. Is I don't do horror. Is the walking dead scary or is it funny? It's not funny. It, I would say it is intense, but it's not scary. Cause I don't like horror at all either. I'd really just like horror shows, but zombie I, zombie movies, I feel are a different genre. Um, some of them are more gory and scary, but Others, you know, they're not, they take a different format. There was this Korean movie called The Train to Bhutan. I thought was, that was a little bit bordering more on sort of horror, but not quite that I thought was really good. Uh, yeah, it's, they're just done in a, a different way. And in Walking Dead, the zombies move so slowly that <laughs> you can get away. <laughs> I have not, so I haven't ventured there. I was doing, you know, 
the whole multiple seasons of Shit's Creek. I was very sad that it ended. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, mm-hmm. you know, I'm looking for something. So, okay, I'll consider The Walking Dead. I'll see if it scares me the first episode. <laughs> um, it might. It depends. <laughs> I'll let you know. <laughs> okay, my second wildcard question. If you could go anywhere in the world right now, say imagine it's pre-COVID or post-COVID, and have dinner with anybody, where would you go and who would you take? Oh, Anybody living or dead? <laughs> I'm going to be sentimental at the moment then, if that's the case, because, you know, don't we always wish we had more time with our family members that were gone too mm. soon? Mm-hmm. So I would, my mom passed away quite a while ago and I would love to, she never really got to travel. So, and I really have got to travel and see a lot of the world. So she, the place she wanted to go most was Egypt Mm. Even though that's not high on my bucket list, I have to say, I do want to see the pyramids, but I would want to take her there. Um, and I, unfortunately, that's not something I could have afford, I could afford to do before she died. Mm. Um, so I never got that chance. So if I given the opportunity, I would love to be able to do that. Oh, that's amazing. Did she want to see the pyramids or did she want to go to Cairo or what was her sort of um, pole to Egypt? She just loved Egypt. She loved Cleopatra and the old movies and she wanted to see the pyramids. And yeah, and it was always my intention to take her there, uh, but I didn't get the, get the opportunity. I have never been there either. Um, so if you go or I go, we'll take some selfies. Yes. And I have to say, we both love cats. My mom was a huge cat person. And so am I. I'm, I'm a cat lady. Uh, so uh, that's maybe that was another poll of it. I don't know. They glorified cats. How many cats do you have? Two. Two. You're only allowed one more than the people in your household. So I'm only allowed two. That's the, that's the rule. Who's, so you don't who said that? Let's think about stigma. Let's go to stigma, okay? And stigma against women (laughs) and women living alone, right? And the cat lady narrative. And if if you have more than the, if I had three or four cats and I lived on my own, you would judge me. Oh, so is this a self-imposed rule? You're only allowed to? (laughs) I was thinking it was like your landlord's rule. (laughs) <laughs> no, it's a self-imposed. It's internalized. It's my internalized stigma, but also how I think other people are going to see me, and also my ability to clean the litter box enough. I don't think I could keep up with it. But if I had more than two, because I feel like people would be very happy to know, like especially if they were like cats in a shelter or something. People would be like, "Oh, look how altruistic she is." Mm. I don't know. Well, I mean, there's a line. Maybe the line is like yes. five cats or line. more. But I would think three uh, is reasonable. Maybe three. Um, you know, I need to get a roommate and then I can have another cat. Or two. Um, I did my <laughs> or another two. I did bring my cat back, uh, Nina, from uh, I visited my aunt down in Mexico who was house sitting and we found her and I brought her back. And that was that was nice. That's a nice story. And Roz is my old cat that I adopted from the local shelter when she was 10. Oh, nice. So to, to, to ward off those people to say, well, why didn't you get a cat from your local shelter? Because I did. Um, and I, I brought Nina back. And it was very easy also to answer everyone's question of immigration. It was so easy. I declared her at the border. Obviously, we had her seen by a vet and got her treated before she came in. But yeah, she was very easy to bring into the country. My aunt also had brought a cat back into Canada uh, years prior as well. And it was was pretty simple, which was very interesting. I did not know that until I had to do it. I, I would have thought it would have been challenging. Did you have any issue with them meeting your two cats? Like, did they get along immediately? Are they BFF? 
they are friends. They meet. They, I mean, um, they do fight sometimes. They're like siblings, but they often go into the bedroom and I catch them snuggling. So and I did try to keep them apart, but it didn't last long because they both wanted the whole control over the apartment. <laughs> we have um, a lot of wild cats in our neighborhood and they uh, have babies underneath of our porch. And then I was like doing a phone call outside and I heard like this little cat meows, like tiny ones. And I looked over and there's like two little kittens. They were the cutest. And then, you know, then they grow up and they run run, run away. But uh, we're more of a dog household here, but I do appreciate cats. I think they're a little bit lower maintenance than dogs. So, yeah. I know they are. And when you have a lifestyle of travel, they're a little easier to, you know, to have mm-hmm. someone to look after them. And, and just to say with your, your cats in your neighborhood, I don't know if you can talk to your local shelter to come and get them all fixed so we can reduce the population. I, I know there's no local shelter in my neighborhood, but we, we oh, often no. think about it. We, 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 yes, I hear you. We're always like, Oh, we should do something about this. But uh, what exactly we'd have to, trap them and then bring them to the humane society and yeah it's kind of like humane society might have um sometimes they have i know the ones here they have volunteers that go out and do it and they trap them and then they bring them in and if they're adoptable they keep them and if they're not they'll they'll actually clip off the top of their ear um and release them back where they found them and they do that so they know which ones in their neighborhood have been well, you've just inspired me. I think we'll do that <laughs> the next time. Well, post-COVID. <laughs> so, um, you got me I, on my other soapbox. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, I like that. Because every year we're like, oh, we should really do something about this. They keep having babies underneath our porch and then vanishing. So, okay, my last wild card question. Is there any great advice that you've ever received that you would like to share with the listeners? That's another good question. Do you know one piece of advice? Go back to my mom again. And that is something I think about a lot. Is she always said that we need to look at the ways we can do things, not the way we can't. Mm. And that resonated with me because I I think we often when faced with a difficult situation immediately think why we can't do it or why it's too hard. But if you change your frame of mind, and, and this has worked for me to think how can I do this? How can I accomplish mm. it? You can, it, it changes the way you approach a situation. And I have to, my mom to thank for that. She said that all the time, Wise to, lady. you know, and it, it, well, yeah. And it, it helped in, in trying to let be a little bit less negative also to when things seem really insurmountable or, you know, really difficult to break things down. Think about how can we, how can we make this work? How can I make it work? Uh, and that has been sort of a lasting piece of advice, I think, that I, I still think about to this day. I think that's so important. And what a great way to end this podcast today, um, which is the idea of critical hopefulness, which is being aware of all of these injustices and looking for what we can do, you know, where there is the possibilities mm-hmm. for change. Exactly. Where where can we make a difference, even if it's just small and with one person and not the, the whole system and structure, you know, because that type of change is just as important. Or one cat. That's wild. One, one cat at a time. <laughs> one cat at a time. <laughs> Thank you so much. And listeners, 
I'll have a link to Dr. Rosemary Morgan and her work and anything else that you'd like us to share um, alongside your profile for this podcast. Thank you again so much for taking your time uh, to share all of your wisdom, uh, especially really relevant to COVID-19 and gender, but as you, as you touched on a lot of other health issues um, and social issues. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Everybody Hates Me. Let's Talk About Stigma, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. Join us next week for more inspiring and motivating conversations with stigma leaders from around the world. If you want to listen, what I have to tell you? If you want to listen, what I have to tell you? If you want to listen,